The sermon text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 through 13. And there we read, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We are in a series through the letter of Hebrews, and we've come today to this section that explains why the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And as we look at our text, we can see that the new covenant is relatively easy to identify. It's the covenant that Christ has inaugurated through his own death, that he is the mediator of the new covenant. This is exactly what he said to his disciples in the upper room in the Lord, the Last Supper, there in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, where as he took the cup, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So that is the new covenant. But you might be asking yourself, well, what is the old covenant that the writer of Hebrews is referring to? What's this old covenant that he's talking about? Now, there are many covenants in the Bible. We know that there was one with Adam, with Abraham and Moses, and, and even with David. Uh, so which old covenant is, is the writer referring to? Well, friends, as we consider the answer to this question, we have to understand that all of the covenants in the Bible are connected, that there is a unity in the covenants. They are all under God's one covenant of grace. And each of the covenants within the covenant of grace unfolds more and more of God's plan of redemption as the Old Testament, as Scripture uh, progresses. Over time, God revealed more and more to his saints about his coming salvation through his Messiah. And he did so with each of the covenants that he revealed to his people. The covenant with Adam, the covenant with Abraham, and Moses, and then even with David, revealed more and more about God's coming salvation through the Messiah. They all pointed his people uh, to Christ, to the new covenant that Christ would inaugurate. You know, when I 
first started learning about covenant theology, it was a bit confusing for me because I was separating the covenants in my mind a little bit too much. Uh, I was seeing them as distinct rather than connected together. And it wasn't until I was reading a book and I saw a diagram, and I love books with pictures. And the author included this wonderful diagram in which he he showed this overarching line that was labeled covenant of grace. And then under that overarching line, he had the individual covenants listed, the covenant with Adam after the fall, covenant with Abraham, and then with Moses and with David, so that they were all showing themselves to be under that umbrella, that umbrella of the covenant of grace. So that then I understood, and I hope you understand this morning, that it's all essentially one covenant with different administrations. You know, this is important for us to grasp this morning because in our passage, uh, the inspired author is going to contrast two covenants, the Mosaic covenant that we read about in Exodus chapter 24 and the new covenant. So he's going to contrast them, show how they are different. But he's not going to do so in the sense that he wants to show that one is bad and one is good. But in the sense that, you know, one was instituted by God, inaugurated by God for a time, the covenant with Moses and with Israel. But that has now passed away. That has faded away. And that God is now relating to his people under the new covenant, under a better covenant, a superior covenant. So I I don't want us to, as we work our way through this text, to think in stark terms. You know, old covenant, bad. New covenant, good. That's not what the author is getting across as he is led to write by the Holy Spirit. But I want us to think instead in redemptive historical terms of God's unfolding revelation to his people. And as more and more is revealed, more and more is understood. And therefore, what is old is now passing away because, as the scripture says, the new has come. See, the old covenant under Moses with Israel was good for the time that God instituted it. But now it has to be put away because a new superior covenant has come and it is mediated through the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this was important especially for the Hebrews to understand. Because remember that, as we've been saying throughout the series, that their situation was uh, not unlike ours today. They were tempted to turn away from Christ. Their temptation was specifically to turn back to the old covenant way of worship and relating to God. They were mostly Jews who had put their faith in Christ, but now because of persecution and because of immaturity in their newfound faith, they were tempted to return to Judaism, to the old covenant way of worship and relating to God. And so the inspired author of Hebrews writes to show them that the old covenant has faded away. It has passed away because the new superior covenant has been established by 
Christ. And we need to see in the text, loved ones, we need to see in the text that this was God's plan all along. This is nothing new. Uh, how do we know that? How, would, how do we know that it was God's plan all along that the old covenant might be put away because of the full redemption that had come in Christ through the new covenant, the fulfillment that had come in Christ? Well, the way we know that, as we look in our passage in Hebrews, is that the inspired author quotes from the book of Jeremiah. So it's a book that was written over 500 years before the Hebrew Christians were even alive. And it was in this book that the writer, Jeremiah, shows that this new covenant was God's plan all along. This was God's will. This was God's decree that what was only shadow in the older covenant would become a reality through his newer covenant. See, if the old covenant under Moses had been able to accomplish the salvation of God's people, if it had been able to redeem them, if it had been able to fully and finally cleanse them of sin, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, God would have never inaugurated a new covenant because that one would have been perfectly fine. It would have accomplished what God had desired for his people. But it wasn't able to, was it? We know that from the scriptures. We know that even from our reading in Exodus chapter 24, as the people said, all this we will do. And yet, they did not keep God's law. This is the argument that we see here in verse 7 in our text this morning. The writer says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. His conclusion is, it was with faults, and therefore a second had to come. And look at the language, loved ones, that the inspired author of Hebrews uses to describe this change in the covenants from old to new. Look at verse 13 especially. He says there, in speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The writer is pointing to the fact that God has made the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, obsolete, not because it was bad, but because it has been fulfilled. See, the sacrificial system that pointed to Christ has been done away with in God's economy, because the perfect sacrifice had come. The sacrifice that the bulls and goats that were laid upon the altar in the older covenant, the sacrifice that those smaller sacrifices pointed to had come in the fullness of Jesus Christ. And so now the old has become obsolete in light of the new in Christ we have received the blessings that all the covenants in the Old Testament pointed forward to. What was promised has been fulfilled. What was shadow is now a reality. And so in quoting Jeremiah, the inspired author of Hebrews, points to three benefits that the new covenant in Christ grants to those who trust in him by faith. Uh, Three benefits 
that the new covenant grants to believers. The first we see in our text, verse 10, is that God puts his law into our minds and hearts. We read verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 8. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So remember, he's contrasting the covenants. And what we see is that in the old covenant, God gave his people the law, but that covenant did not give God's people the ability to love God's law and to keep it. Uh, God's people in the older covenant did not have a heart or an inner disposition and desire to obey God. This doesn't mean that nobody in the older covenant had a renewed heart, but it means that only a small remnant did. And those that did have renewed hearts, we know, enjoyed fewer privileges than Christians do today because the coming of Christ and the fullness of God's plan of redemption had not yet fully been revealed. You might say that those in the older covenant were living in the dawn of revelation. While you and I live in the light of the noonday sun, we have the full revelation of Jesus Christ in the newer covenant. We see how he came, how he died, how he was raised, how he ascended, how he continues to be our prophet, priest, and king. We see all of those things. We see those things that those in the older covenant only saw in shadowy form. And so, if we think about this, we can ask ourselves, you know, what's so new about the new covenant? And what we see is that What God has done in this new covenant now is he has taken his moral law, his moral law, which was before only externally written on tablets of stone, he has taken this law and he has written it on our hearts and minds. He has internalized it in his people. So now, loved ones, you and I not only know God's law, can not only read it, but we also have a God-given desire to obey it. It's been internalized for you and for me. See, this points to the work of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. This was the, the dramatic change from the old covenant to the new covenant. That dramatic change that happened at Pentecost when Christ poured out his Spirit upon the church. That moment when the Spirit was poured out in order that God's people might experience God's sovereign grace through regeneration, that it was at that moment that his law was engraved upon their hearts and their minds. And that is the moment that the prophet Jeremiah was pointing to in his prophecy that the writer of Hebrews um, cites in our text. Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way, and I've included this quote in two places in the bulletin because I really want you to read this quote and understand what Sinclair is getting across. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way. He says, New covenant believers 
receive such a fullness of the Spirit that sometimes we struggle to understand the conditions of believers in the Old Covenant. The Spirit withheld the fullness of His manifestation, and only some experienced a heightened revelation of His goodness. While this was more than sufficient for faith and worship, New Covenant believers enjoy the astounding privilege of seeing the Almighty God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus promised this blessing, and he fulfilled his promise at Pentecost, the unique event at which he poured out his spirit in rivers of living water to his church. You can compare it to a dripping faucet in the older covenant, to a fire hydrant in the new covenant, as the spirit is being poured out in his regenerating power upon the church. And loved ones, notice in our text, Hebrews chapter 8, especially verse 10, that the faith that is brought about in the believer's heart and mind is both in his and her heart and mind. This is very important for us to notice. Uh, Our mind in this text and throughout the Bible, when it speaks of the mind, it represents how we think and how we understand truth. And so by the Spirit, by the regenerating power of the Spirit... We are given understanding. The gospel that was once foolishness to us is now understood by us. We see the beauty of Christ as it is proclaimed to us, as he is proclaimed to us in the gospel. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the veil that was once over our eyes has been removed. But not only does God regenerate our mind, give us a new mind, the mind of Christ, but our hearts are also renewed. The heart that represents our will and our affection, what we desire. And God is showing us through this passage that in the new covenant, by the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ poured out onto his church, both our minds and our hearts are redeemed. So we both understand the gospel and what pleases God, but we also desire what the gospel points to, what God teaches us in his word. We also desire to know Christ and him crucified. We want the things of God rather than merely having a knowledge or an intellectual assent of them. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, section 1, and Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith is an excellent summary of our faith that we uh, confess. The way section 1 describes this is, it says, All those and only those whom God has predestined to life, He is pleased to call effectually in His appointed and accepted time by His Word and Spirit. And notice the way that the confession describes that moment of regeneration when our hearts and our minds are renewed now to desire the things of God. The confession says, He calls them from the state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. In this calling, God enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly so that they understand the things of God. And then it says, He takes away their hearts of stone." And give them, gives them hearts of flesh. He renews their wills, and by his 
almighty power turns them to what is good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Yet he does this in such a way that they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. So you see, the text in Hebrews chapter 8, the whole newer covenant, the Westminster Confession of Faith is pointing us to the fact that the Bible here is referring to more than just a conscience, right? Um, All people have a conscience, and by God's common grace, he subdues sin in all people. This is more than just uh, somebody's conscience feeling bad, but it is God sovereignly and positively drawing us to himself and giving us a desire for Christ, a desire for holiness, a desire to do those things that please, that please him. I experienced this personally uh, my freshman year of high school. You know, growing up, I grew up in a Christian family. I wasn't a, a rebellious kid, but uh, I would probably describe myself as uh, being somewhat indifferent to the things of, of God and to the church. Um, went to church, jumped through the hoops, but never really felt a, a desire to know Christ, a desire to obey the Lord. Um, but I just showed up on Sunday morning because my parents uh, brought me. And it was my freshman year of high school. Uh, it was during that year that the Lord worked in my heart in such a way and he did it relatively suddenly. It wasn't like a dramatic experience. Right? I can't point to the day and the hour. But he did it relatively suddenly. Where I remember a distinct moment in which I desired to know Christ, to know him both intellectually and to know him with my affections. I wanted to love him. And I started reading my Bible daily, which I'd never wanted to do before. My parents had to remind me to do that. I started paying attention to the preaching. started to pray on my own, which led a couple years later to developing a sense of call to the ministry. And so, you know, as I, as I look back, what happened? Well, again, the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 10, explains it. What happened was God called me from the state of sin and death in which I was by nature. He enlightened my mind spiritually and savingly. He, not I, he took away my heart of stone and gave me a heart of flesh and thereby caused me to love Christ and gave me a desire to obey him. So it was not just that uh, a Christ that I was hearing about that was external to me, but now I was looking upon the one that I knew personally and that I loved with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I know over the years in talking to many of you that you have had similar experiences. You've shared them with me. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, loved ones poured out in the new covenant, God has made you and me willing and able to believe, has given us a desire to love Christ more than our sin, to desire Christ more than the fading sinful pleasures of this life. Who has done this? God has done this because of the blessings that come through his 
new covenant inaugurated by Christ. The second benefit of the new covenant that we see in our text is that God gives us a true knowledge of himself. We read in verse 11, And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. Now, uh, this text, remember, is quoted by or is spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, is quoted by the author of Hebrews. And it's significant because in Jeremiah's day, when this prophecy was first given, the problem that many Israelites had was that they did not know God. Uh, They were known as God's covenant people, but because of the sinfulness of, of Israel's priests and kings that were not doing the jobs that they were called to do by God, uh, and leading God's people in true worship, uh, leading God's people in, in, in the true ways of the Lord, and protecting God's people. As a result of their sinfulness, God's people were often led astray. So God's people did not know him truly. There was a hierarchy of knowledge and understanding that often didn't filter down to all of the people of, of Israel. The priests knew God's word, though they didn't obey it, um, and they failed to teach God's word to God's people, to the least of the people. And this is why when we speak about the newer covenant, the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, that the least in the kingdom under the new covenant era is greater than John the Baptist. Now, that's a significant thing for the Lord Jesus to say. If you just think about what, what he's, he's saying. You know, he said of John the Baptist that he is the greatest prophet of the older covenant. Remember that? And yet, the Lord Jesus also says that the least in the kingdom under the new covenant is greater than John the Baptist. Why would Jesus say that about you and about me? Well, because John did not fully see the blessings of the cross. He did not fully see the blessings that would come through the resurrection and the ascension of Christ and the blessings of Pentecost and all that Christ ushered in by the new covenants. So that's why, loved ones, the Lord Jesus says that we are greater than John the Baptist because we are those, again, who live in light of the noonday sun. You and I, this morning, are like those men on the road to Emmaus whose eyes have been opened to recognize and to know Christ and to see the history of redemption as Christ has fulfilled it, to see truly and fully the one that the law, the prophets, and the wisdom literature pointed to. It's in connection with the the first point of the sermon, uh, that this knowledge that we have of the Lord now is not merely information, but it consists of conviction, and an intimate knowledge of the Lord. It's not just intellectual sense, but it's knowing the Lord personally, intimately, experientially, we might say. The late Jonathan Edwards, um, 
who many agree was the greatest theologian that America ever produced, uh, he explained it this way. He said that the Holy Spirit gives us a true knowledge of God that is not merely rational, not just in our minds, but it also takes hold of our senses and our desires. And he gives the example of a chemist. Um, You know, a chemist can take a sample of honey, maybe put it on a slide, put it under a microscope, can run tests on that sample of honey, and can tell us the chemical composition of honey, uh, can tell us the sugar content, can tell us everything there is to know um, informationally about uh, what honey is like. But, Jonathan Edward, Edward pointed out, Edwards pointed out, if that chemist never tastes honey, his knowledge will never be experiential. So, loved ones, our knowledge of Christ is not merely informational. But under the newer covenant, by the Spirit that has been poured out upon the church and by His Word that fully reveals Him to us, we know Christ fully. And so when we speak of Christ, we don't just give facts about Him like we would speak of George Washington or or Abraham Lincoln, but we speak as those who know Him personally, who love Him, who are in union and in communion with Him. The third benefit that we see in our text of the New Covenant is that God forgives our sins. Verse 12, we read, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What we know about the law under the Older Covenant was that the law revealed sinfulness. It did not remove sin, but it merely revealed the sinfulness of God's people. Even the annual sacrifices in the Older Covenant were reminders of the people's sinfulness and the need for full and final atonement before God. Writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, verses 3 through 4, explains this, where we read, But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But now, in the newer covenant, forgiveness has come. The one whom those older covenant sacrifices merely typified, merely pointed toward, has come. And he has provided full and final atonement for all of his people's sin, past, present, and future. So some of you might be asking, you know, how can I be sure that that's true, that my sins are forgiven? Well, we see that God has declared this truth in his word, that we have, loved ones, received pardon through Jesus Christ. We read in the Older Covenants, in Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12, these words of assurance of pardon. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then 
in the newer covenant, we read the same assurance, the assurance that comes through Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Loved ones, we know that we have been forgiven of our sins because he has declared it in his word. He has given us assurance through his word that all those who put their faith in Christ are forgiven. And not only that, but he has graciously added to his word the sacraments. These sacraments whereby we receive the same grace. These sacraments that are before us this morning, this sacrament of the Lord, the Lord's Supper, that is God's invisible word to us of the assurance of pardon that we receive through Jesus Christ. The newer covenant inaugurated not by the blood of bulls and goats, but as the Lord Jesus said in that upper room, that is inaugurated by his own blood. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, who through his broken body and shed blood has inaugurated the new covenant. We thank you for the assurance that you have given us that our sins have been blotted out, that you do not remember them any longer. Bless us and nourish us now, we pray, through the sacrament that is before us. For it's in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.